You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're in the middle of a sermon series we pray, called Begin the Story. And we've been going through the book of Genesis, the beginning of our Bible, trying to figure out uh, what's going on at the beginning of our Bible, trying to figure out what it means for us today. And so we're going through these ancient stories, thousands of years old, that shape and influence the way we view the world. And that's what they want us to do. They want us to read these stories in a way that shape and influence the world. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to send them or answers to any questions that I have. Uh, I would love for you to send them that way, and uh, we can take a look at those uh, for sure. Someone, I already got a text. There's veggies back there. If anybody needs some garden veggies, (laughs) I saw some delicious tomatoes. So here's where we are so far. It's a little bit small, but you get it. Genesis 1, God creates. The God over all creates everything. And at the end of that creation, creates us humans to be these divine rulers, co-rulers with God to help creation flourish. Uh, Then the first humans uh, violated that boundary that God had put on them to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, not an apple, some fruit. We don't know. Not important. The boundary was violated. We learned that the tree might not have been bad or good. It just maybe wasn't our time, right? But we violated the boundary and that plunged humanity into this brokenness because it broke faith and trust with God and and it entered in a world full of sin and death and brokenness. Someone wants the password. Uh, It spiraled further and further with each failed attempt at rescue and salvation. God tried to rescue the world through, through Cain, or through Abel, depending on how you read the story, and through Noah. And then uh, it just failed further and further until we got to Genesis 11, which was the Tower of Babel, which is humanity at its lowest and most selfish. God's new plan uh, was to save the world through a specific couple, a very old and childless couple. And the salvation plan was that they'd become a great and mighty nation with lots and lots of children, Abraham and Sarah. And we learned that they did have a son after many, many trials and many, many tests. They had a son named Isaac. And then last sermon, we learned that Isaac got a wife named Rebecca, and she's amazing. She's incredible, the best. Um, And we're going to read about Isaac and Rebecca's children today, Esau and Jacob. We heard part of the story a few weeks ago when Pastor Kurt came and preached. He preached on God wrestling with Jacob, and we're going to hear part of that story again but I really am focusing on this Esau story. So there's going to be some overlap. Uh, Yeah, Jacob and Esau. And here's where the story begins, and here's where we ended a few weeks ago. Rebecca is pregnant. She's hating it. She's hating life. And she does not want to be pregnant. Well, she does, but she says, uh, if this is what it's like to be pregnant, why did it happen to me? There's just so much going on. She's got these twin boys in her wrestling and fighting. And so she went to ask of the Lord, and the Lord speaks to her, which was pretty amazing for this time in the way that they told stories back then. And God says, two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. And to subvert cultural norms and expectations, which was one of our points last time, it says the older will serve the younger. 
And so she has these two boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first, and he's a hairy boy. That's his whole deal. I mean, this is what Esau means, super hairy, which I learned that there's a, there's a thing that can happen to babies where they just are born with a ton of hair. I mean, I'm imagining a baby with a full beard, like a, like a wolf man. And Jacob is born grabbing onto Esau's heel, and that's what Jacob means is the one who grabs the heel. And it, and it has this meaning of one who tries to trip people up trick people, a deceiver, a liar, a supplanter. The Bible uses the word supplanter all the time. I'm like, I've never heard that in my life. They're like, no, you know, supplanter. And I'm like, no, I don't know. Can you give me a different word? But the one who grabs the heel, that's what Jacob means, Yaakov. By the way, we get our name James, my name, from Jacob. And so uh, it's not a very good name in the Bible. It's liar, trickster, deceiver. The Bible says they grow up together, and it says Esau learns how to be a magnificent hunter. This big, hairy, burly dude loves to hunt. And his father, Isaac, getting older, getting blinder, loves his son Esau because he loves wild game. And so they have a close relationship because of this hunting relationship. And it says Jacob prefers to live in tents. And I'm like, that is my man. I... <laughs> He's got an Xbox in there, I think. It's just like... <laughs> Uh, I think it was a phrase to say that he was a little more civilized. He wasn't out running around like his brother Esau. And as the story goes, Jacob buys the birthright. And in these times, these things were very important. So his brother Esau was very hungry. And Jacob says, I'll buy the firstborn status for a bowl of stew. And Esau says, what good is it for me to be the firstborn if I'm going to perish and waste away? And so uh, he buys the birthright. And then Jacob deceitfully takes the blessing of the firstborn from his father by tricking his father. So his father is on his deathbed. He's blind. He can't really tell what's going on. And so Jacob and his mother, uh, Rebecca, they decide they're going to deceive poor Isaac. And they dress Jacob up to be all hairy. They put goat's hair on. I mean, how hairy are you of goat's hair? <laughs> they're like, yeah, that's Esau. <laughs> Make him smell like Esau. And Jacob goes in all dressed up and... His father grabs him and feels him and smells him. And he says, this is Esau. Bring me some, bring me some of that, that delicious wild game and I'll give you my blessing. And so Isaac blesses Jacob. And in these times, these words of blessing were wildly important. Esau comes back from the hunt. And he says, what do you mean you blessed Jacob? And there's this super sad scene where, where Esau says, don't you have another blessing for me? Don't you have any words of blessing for me? And Isaac says, sorry, I gave all the good ones to Jacob. And here's your blessing. And it's really a curse. And so Esau says, as soon as I'm done mourning for my father, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. And Jacob takes off with nothing but the shirt on his back and the staff. And he heads out to his uncle's house, Rebecca's brother, Laban. And he starts to work for him. And he notices that he has two beautiful, well, he has a beautiful daughter named Rachel. Rachel, And he has another daughter named Leah. And uh, it says Leah has very pretty eyes, which is a biblical way of saying that's her best feature. <laughs> Listen, I'm here to tell you the truth. 
So he says, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, okay, work for me for seven years. And Jacob says, okay. And he works for seven years. And then uh, the time comes for them to get married. And he says, I'm going to be in my tent. Uncle Laban, bring me my wife tonight. And we are going to get married. And Uncle Laban brings Leah, the older sister. And there's this reversal that happens. And I don't have time to go into it. But just as Jacob tricked his father, now Uncle Laban tricks Jacob and gives him the wrong daughter. And you imagine the scene, right, of the going in and the, the being blinded by his own lusts and not realizing what woman he's with. And he comes out the next morning, he goes, wait, wrong daughter. And Uncle Laban says, in our culture, we don't let the youngest daughter get married first. He goes, but I'll let you marry Rachel, finish your week of wedding celebration, and then pledge to work for me for another seven years, and you can have, you can have Rachel. And so he gets to marry Rachel a week later, but he has to work another seven years. And Leah is the less loved wife, and she's the one that has all the children, because this is a Bible story, and that's just how things go. And Rachel, the beloved wife, finally gets to have one child. And in all that frustration and fighting, they also offer up their maidservants for Jacob to have children with. He ends up with 11 sons from four different women. It's a mess. I do not encourage it. <laughs> and where we are today is Esau is marching towards Jacob. These, these angels of the Lord show up to Jacob and say, hey, now that you're out on your own and you've got these 11 children and you've amassed all this wealth and children and wives, Esau's coming. And remember what he said? He was going to kill you. Well, now he's coming and he's got 400 men. And that's where our story is today. You know how I preach, head, heart, hand, something for us to know, feel, or experience and do. And we're going to do three different stories. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to flip the order, but we're going to talk about a prayer of Jacob's we're going to talk about him wrestling with God, and we're going to talk about this final conflict, this great battle with Esau. And so here's the, the, the opening story. I know you can't see it. You could turn to Genesis 32 if you want, or you could just trust me. Jacob, the supplanter. <laughs> Jacob went on his way, and God's messengers approached, and they said, Esau's coming with 400 men. Get ready. And so Jacob, he prepares, he plans, and he prays. And his plan is this, I'm going to split up my camp, take half my wives and children and wealth and put it over here. I'm going to take the other half and I'm going to put it over here. That way when Esau gets here and kills all of us, the other one will have a chance to get away. Yeah, sounds like a good plan. So he sends messengers to Esau and he sends a bunch of gifts thinking maybe he can appease him or at least slow him down. And so that's what happens with the messengers. And the messengers said, well, he's coming, he's got 400 people. He says, Jacob was terrified. And he felt trapped. And then he prays to the Lord. And this is what he says in this prayer. Lord, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make sure things go well for you. I don't deserve how loyal and truthful you've been to your servant. I went away across the Jordan with just my staff, but now I've become two camps. Save me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid he will come and kill me. The mothers and their children always puts himself first. Classic Jacob. 
You were the one who told me. You, God, were the one who told me, I will make sure things go well for you, repeats himself. And I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea. So many, you won't even be able to count them. That's his prayer. And so Jacob spent the night there, and he started planning again. He actually comes up with a new plan that's even more horrific and tragic. We will get to it. But what, is, what does God want us to feel? Not know first. What does God want us to experience? What, what can this prayer teach us about what God wants for our life? I think God wants us to experience the tension of both the bigness and the smallness. And I know that's vague, so we got to get into it. I think there's a tension that we have to hold, that we have to learn to hold. We're going to want to go towards one or the other. We're going to want to go towards the bigness or the smallness, but God wants us to hold the tension of both big and small. First off, right off the bat, I'm going to show you that in his prayer, your Bibles are going to translate it, I I am undeserving or "I I am unworthy, but it's literally, I am smaller. And undoubtedly, this has to do with his big hairy brother coming and he's going, I'm smaller. But also there's a, there's a theological concept going on about being able to be in need of God's help, recognizing where we are in the grand cosmic scheme. But also I see the ways in which Jacob is big here, and I see the ways in which God is both big and small. Let's get into it. So here's the two things I want to tell you. God is both big and small in this story. Jacob is both big and small in this story. Most people don't have a problem with the bigness of God. We often think about the bigness of God. But maybe this story might be asking you, is your picture of God too big? Is God too impersonal, too far away? Uh, You can never get a grasp of what God is doing or what God is about or what God wants for you. And when it comes to ourselves... We will naturally lean towards one or the other. Maybe you're a person who thinks good things about yourself. You're pretty high in your own mind, and that's fine. And some of us think pretty small of ourselves. But we see both in Jacob's story, and I want you to hold both. Jacob shows us how to hold both our own bigness and our own smallness. Before I get into the text, it just reminds me of of, uh, binoculars. You know how you look through one end and everything's closer and bigger? And you look through the other end and everything's really small. And as a kid, you just walk around the house like this, bumping into stuff, like my kids. Grandma got them all their own pairs of binoculars. I was like, this is just a broken nose waiting to happen. I don't know. (laughs) Because they just like looking at everything really small and tripping over stuff. And I think binoculars might be the perfect, like, example of what Jacob's asking us to do holding the bigness and the small. And there's one object, we can make things big or we can make things small. And we need to do both sometimes, both for ourselves and for God. We need to make God big sometimes when we're overwhelmed and we have that anxiety. And sometimes we can focus on the smallness of God when there's sadness, when there's fear, when there's depression. Jacob teaches how to do both and in ourself. And he does it by this. He does it this way. When he prays, he points to the promises that God made and he says, I'm going to hold you to those. Remember when you said, God, this is Jacob's bigness. Remember when you said you were going to make things go well for me? I'm holding you to that. He prays that twice. And I think sometimes we get to lean into our bigness. We get to go, remember, God, you said, 
I'm holding you to that. And I love that in Jacob because that is not my natural inclination. My natural inclination is to go, I don't know, whatever you want, right? Like, I am smaller. I resonate with that line more than I resonate. Like, you remember you said you were going to make things go well for me and you were going to bless me? That's the bigness of Jacob in this story. But his smallness is, hey, also I recognize I left with nothing but a staff and you made something big out of me. I recognize both of those things. Why would we ever lean into our smallness, right? Our culture tells us to lean into our bigness all the time, to lean into our strengths, to get that power or that prestige or that possessions. Why would we ever lean into our smallness? Because in our smallness, like Jacob, we learn that God is on the side of smallness, that God throws in God's lot with the small ones and the little ones. We see this in Jesus. Here comes another wall of text, but trust me, it does say what I'm about ready to tell you. It does say... When the disciples asked Jesus who's the greatest in the kingdom, or Jesus asked them, you know, they asked. He brings a child to them and sits them down and he says, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you definitely will not enter the kingdom of God. Those who humble themselves like a little child will be the greatest in the kingdom. And then Jesus turns away from the child and he starts talking about us as children of God. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to trip and fall, it'd be worse for them if they just never would have existed at all like don't do that and then here he says be careful that you don't look down on the little ones their angels are always before my father in heaven and then he tells the parable of the lost sheep and he says my father who is in heaven doesn't want to lose one of these little ones one of my favorite scholars walter Brueggemann says it is a primal theme of biblical faith that God has cast his lot with the little ones against the strong of the world. And so one of the things I think we learned from Jacob is that we can lean into our smallness, but we have to learn to balance both, right? We also learn from our smallness that we stand tallest when we lean on Jesus, and we see that in Jacob when he says, I am smaller. He says that here when he says, I left with just my staff, but I become two camps. And so we learn both. Hey, God, remember those promises you made? I'm holding you to those, but also I'm holding this idea that I'm smaller, that I'm smallness. And we learn a lot from that. What does God want us to learn from this story of Jacob and Esau? And we get to our next part about Jacob wrestling with God in the middle of the night. And here's Jacob's plan. He says, scrap that two camps idea. We're not doing that. I'm going to line up my family in the order from how much I love them to how much I don't love them. So I'm going to put all the ones that I love the least up front, the servants, their children, Leah, her, her children, beloved Rachel, and then my favorite child, Joseph. And everyone's like, that feels really traumatic and tragic. And he's like, this is the best plan. And my his thought must be, maybe Esau will get tired of hacking all these people to death. And his arms will just get tired and he'll spare poor Joseph. And then it says that Jacob went into the front of the line, which may be the most 
selfish thing he's ever done in any of these stories ever. It says he sees his brother coming towards him. I jumped ahead, y'all. I'm sorry. Before that, he wrestles God in the middle of the night. Hold that thought. <laughs> he wrestles God. He comes up with his plan. He lines them all up. He wrestles with God. And, and this is what it says about wrestling with God. It says, uh, Jacob stayed apart with himself, and he wrestled with God until dawn. And when the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. And the man spoke first and said, let me go, dawn is breaking. And Jacob said, I won't go until you bless me. This is the bigness of Jacob. And the man said, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name no longer is Jacob, it's Israel. So if you ever number, wondered where Israel comes from, it comes from this story right here. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. And this is what God says, because you struggled with God and with man and won. And Jacob, who, who asked, then asked, tell me your name, God. And God said, why do you ask my name? And he blessed Jacob there. And Jacob named that place Peniel because I've seen God face to face and my life has been saved. And the sun rose as Jacob passed that place, limping because of his thigh. And here's what I think God wants us to learn. Keep that Jacob story in your mind about his family lined up. I think God wants us to know that we can wrestle with God and win, but it's costly. One of the things we never focus on when we tell this story is that Jacob wrestles with God and wins. Jacob wrestles with God and wins, but it costs him. Look what it says. I'm giving you a new name. God says, here's your new name. Not Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humanity and won, which is wild to me. Again, going back to that bigness and smallness of God, this is a small picture of God, right? That God allows us to struggle with God, to wrestle with God, to grapple with God. Jacob wins, and God allows that to happen. God allows us to wrestle with God and win, I think not because God is helpless, but because God is humble. Because God is on the side of smallness, right, as we talked about earlier. And in wrestling with God, we get access to God. We get closeness to Jesus. We get a deeper understanding of the divine. And we get a fullness of the faith and a strengthening of our trust. God wants you to wrestle with God. And God might even let you win out of God's own humility because it gives us these things. It gives Jacob a new identity. It puts him on a direction, a plan that God wants him to be on to save the world. It reminds me of animals fighting. You ever seen lion cubs wrestle their dads? That lion could tear him to shreds. Sometimes lions do tear these guys to shreds. But most of the time, they let their kids wrestle them and annoy them. Look, he, he snarls and then he licks them and then he snarls. They say, even, they say even sometimes the older animals will put themselves at a disadvantage. They are trying to teach their kids about all kinds of things like hunting, like how to protect themselves. This play... This play fighting and this play wrestling teaches them the skills they need for life. I think one of the lessons we learned from Jacob 
is that God allows us to wrestle with God and win sometimes. Jacob won. Jacob said, bless me, and God blessed him. Not in the way that Jacob probably wanted. Jacob probably wanted more wives. Good night. More children, more land, more animals. But God blessed him with a new name, a new identity, uh, uh, literally a new way of walking in life. By the way, it says thigh, but it's probably not his thigh. There's a euphemism in the Bible. It's probably... He's got, probably got some issues down here. But either way, God has transformed him and his identity through this wrestling. And I think we learned from Jacob that God encourages you to wrestle. This is what we learned from Kurt is that some of us haven't wrestled with God and it shows, right? That was the line that was most powerful for me. Some of us haven't and it shows. That maybe we think the picture of God is too big and, and we just don't even bring the stuff that we need to bring before God because God's too big. And maybe the picture we get from Jacob is that sometimes God is small and sometimes God wants to grapple and sometimes God lets us win because in, in wrestling we get access to the divine in a way that we never have. But it is costly in the best way. It costs everything. Reminds me of this story from Jesus and then we'll get to that third point. We're back to Jesus and the disciples say, hey, Jesus, you're coming into your kingdom. We're coming, into your, we're coming into your kingdom, you are, and we want to sit at your right and your left hand. Allow us to sit at the best seats in your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say no. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you, can you go through the baptism that I'm going to go? Are you going to be able to enter the suffering that I'm going to enter into? And they went, Sure. Sounds good. And he says, you will. You will. I see this same story with Jacob of the demanding of a blessing to, to wrestling with God, but it costs us. It requires us to go low, to go small. Jesus then defines greatness as those who serve the most. We can wrestle with God, but it's going to cost us. That's what Jacob's story, I think, is an encouragement for us to wrestle with God but we won't be the same afterwards. Let's get to that third point that I was so excited to get to that I totally skipped my second point. <laughs> Jacob lines up his whole family from the ones he loves the least to the ones he loves the most. Joseph, baby Joseph at the end. He lines them up. And then it says that uh, he went and he, Jacob, went to the front of the line and he bowed down seven times as he saw Esau coming towards him with his 400 men scared to death that Esau was going to kill him because that's where we last saw Esau with his pledge to kill his brother. And he sends all these gifts and he says, Esau, take these gifts, take these gifts. He sends all these gifts and then finally himself prostrating before his brother in the dirt, praying something is going to happen. And it says, Jacob looked up and he saw Esau approaching with 400 men. Jacob divided his children. He went to the front. He bowed down to the ground seven times as he was approaching his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. The story goes so slow in its details. And it builds to this moment. And you think based on all the details, that Esau is just going to be a murdering machine. 
And he shows up and he throws their arms around each other and they kiss each other and they weep in the dirt together. And then Esau says, who's, who's all these people? Introduce me to your family. And Jacob says, this is the children that God graciously gave to me. And then all the children bowed down. Esau says, why did you send all these gifts? Jacob said, I'm looking for your kindness. Esau says, I have enough. Keep your stuff. And then Jacob said, please do me the kindness of accepting my gift. Seeing your face is like seeing God's face. Since you've accepted me so warmly, take these presents. Because God has been generous to me and I have everything that I need. Both of these brothers in their enoughness have been able to reconcile together. And it's a beautiful thing. I think what God wants us to do is that if we want to see the face of God, we have to live the grace of God. And I know that's cliche, but just go with me here for a second. I think this is the point of this story. I think everything has built up to this moment. Even the wrestling with God, which is sometimes the thing we focus on, even that was to get to this place. Because Jacob's going to say, to Esau, seeing your kindness, seeing your forgiveness is like seeing the face of God. And if Jacob wouldn't have wrestled with God the night before, it would just be a cliche. It would just be flattery. But he saw God the night before. And he named that place where he wrestled with God Peniel, which means I've seen God face to face and my life has been saved. And then he goes and he sees Esau and he says, truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Jacob had seen the face of God. And now in Esau's forgiveness and embrace, he sees the face of God again. This is for me the point of Jacob and Esau's story. These two brothers striving together in their mother's womb have now come together in their enoughness. I wanted to show you the Hebrew. Don't get overwhelmed. I'm not even that good at Hebrew, so you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar to see this. But when Jacob wrestles with God, he names that place. He says, Raiti Elohim panim el panim vati nasel nefesh. Right? I've seen God face to face, and my life has been spared, or my soul has been spared. And then when he sees Esau, he says, Raiti panim kirat panim Elohim vater seni. See the words, the, the sentences are supposed to be, you're supposed to remember in the Esau story what happened the night before. Panim, face, see him twice. Elohim, God. This to me is the point of the story. You want to see the face of God? Extend and receive forgiveness to one another. Now you can wrestle, and I pray you have some divine moments in your life that are overwhelming and that change you and transform you. In fact, I'm banking on it. I believe that will happen to you. But if you want to see God's face more regularly than those sporadic divine moments, forgive one another. Love one another. Jacob says, in that forgiveness and in that love, he sees God's face, the one he saw the night before. I think this is the point of the story. So much so, I think this is the major theme we get throughout Scripture. My favorite verse in John, and we're wrapping up. If you've got questions, then no one has ever seen God, First John says. 
But if we love each other, then God dwells in us and his love is made perfect in us. Like, he can't guarantee you're going to see God, but if you want to experience God, it's this way. By loving one another, God dwells in us and God's, the goal of God's love on earth is, reaches its highest point when we do this. We love and forgive one another. So if you got any questions, then... But this is, to me, the point of this story, that Esau and Jacob reconciling reveals to us the heart and character of God, and we can experience God, we can see God when we love and serve and forgive and accept one another. Send your questions. One of them, what is the difference between uh, birthright and the blessing? Specifically this story or just any, any story? So in this culture, uh, and in many cultures still today, the, the birthright is, is birth order. And so the first one, the firstborn male, sorry y'all, gets the stuff, right? They get the stuff. They get to inherit most of uh, the family's belongings but there's an expectation that they will take care of the family as well. They'll carry on the name. They'll take care of the aging parents. It was a system that worked well, um, but that's the birthright thing. Most of these stories, though, in the Bible is that God subverts that cultural thing. That's not a God thing. That's a cultural thing. And so God subverts that, and sometimes he goes with the younger brother, like with Abel, or in this story, like Jacob. But there's a blessing that is usually passed on from the father, the patriarch, And it seems in these stories that God honors those words of blessing. I don't think we have the same weightiness of words in our culture. And so um, if I was Isaac, I'd be like, oh, I blessed the wrong kid. Take it back. Take these back. He's like, I meant to bless Esau. That was Jacob. Psych. But for some reason in these cultures, there's a weightiness to the words. And scripture over and over again tries to tell us the power of our words. Even Jesus says we will be judged, right, by the words that we say. Proverbs tells us that there's life and death in our words. James tells us that we need to control our tongue. And so it's a, not a cultural thing for us that words have weight to them, but in these stories, God seems to honor these blessings that are handed out. And so there's a birth order and that just usually tells you how things are going to go, but God subverts that because he's not bound by our human traditions. I'm going to end with this story of St. Beshoy. His feast day was the other day. He was a monk in the 300s. And when people would show up to the monastery, the monks would wash their feet. So a stranger shows up and St. Beshoy gets down to wash his feet. And he sees that the feet have been marked with nails. And he looks up and he says, I think I know who you are. This is a story. It's an old Christian monk tradition. It's not in scripture. And as soon as he says, I think I know who you are, washing his feet, that person vanishes. And the angels come and tell St. Beshoy, Christ visited your monastery today. And word got around that St. Beshoy had met Jesus in the washing of another person's feet. And they said, we want to meet Jesus too. And so Beshoy says, well, let's go to the top of that mountain and maybe Jesus will meet us there. 
And so the young monks take off running for the mountain, and old Beshoy is walking behind with his staff. And the first monks pass a person who has experienced paralysis, can't walk. And he says, where are you going? And the young monk said, we're going to meet Jesus. And, and he said, I want to go too. And they said, we don't have time or energy to take you. St. Beshoy passes by, and the man experiencing paralysis says, are you going to the top of the mountain? I want to go too. And old Beshoy says, climb on, piggyback. Let's go. We're going up this mountain together. In the story, the tradition goes that as Beshoy was walking, the, the man got heavier and heavier. And as he's holding him piggyback style, which I just think is amazing, he notices that the feet have nails in them again. And he says, I think I washed your feet the other day. And immediately this person disappears. And he gets to the top of the mountain, and the young monks say, where is Jesus? And famously, St. Beshoy says, it is not necessary to seek Christ on the mountain, but in one's neighbor. And I think if we could take anything away from the story of Jacob and Esau, it's that if you want to see God's face, Jacob teaches us that we can do so by extending love and forgiveness to one another. Head. We can and should wrestle with God. We can even win, but it is costly. And with our heart, this story teaches us to hold the tension between the bigness and smallness of God and even our own bigness and smallness, recognizing that we are small, but God thinks mighty of us. We can lean into both. And with our hands, God wants us to seek the face of God by extending and receiving the grace of God with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and for this story. We pray that its meaning will extend deep down into our hearts. And that you would help us to not try to find you on the mountaintops, but that you would help us to see your face in one another. Would your Holy Spirit break our hearts so that we would be people of forgiveness and grace? And would you give us the courage to be people who ask for forgiveness and grace from others? And we pray that as we come to this bread and the cup, that we would experience your grace and your love and your peace in the midst of these elements. Table Church, would you help me in the prayer by praying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven.